0: We're going to begin a brand new sermon series last week, but now we're going to begin it this week. And it is titled "Culture Wars." And if you're going to put something on social media today, uh, the hashtag is Culture Wars, so we can see what you uh, put there. And also, um, if you would like information or you would like um, these sermon notes. If you'd like to ask questions about the sermon, use the email address info at Bridgechurch. Dot .cc and we'll be glad to respond uh, in any way that we can to help you. The fact is that our culture is shifting. And it's shifting to the left. It's shifting hard to the left. The result of this shift in our culture is a growing Tension between the church and the world. That tension's always been there, but as the Lord postpones His return, how many of you believe the Lord's going to return? The more, yes, amen. That is something to celebrate right there. He's coming. Jesus is coming back, coming back soon, and He's going to set up His rule and reign in Jerusalem, and he is not going to build any walls. He is going to tear down the walls. Amen? And uh, we look forward to that day when Jesus returns. Until he does, and the longer he postpones that, and we don't know when he will return, there are signs. We know it's soon, but we don't know what soon to us means compared to soon to him in his view of time, but we know that his return is very, very soon. As a matter of fact, We believe it could be at any moment. But as he waits to return, the tension between a a left-shifting culture and the church, churches, not all churches, and I'm not here to criticize churches today, but when I talk about the church today, I'm talking about Christ-centered churches. I'm talking about Bible-based churches. I'm talking about churches like us. The longer Jesus waits to return, the tighter that tension gets. I don't think I've ever seen our country in my lifetime more divided than it is. And not just our country, but our world in general. And really, all of that is a sign of his soon return. He said that would happen. He talked about um, um, tumultuous times, difficult times that would come before he returns. Now Christians, because of this tension, Christians in the world today, and I just think about our community right here around the bridge, they are reaching out to churches like us, to the people in those churches, the leaders in those churches, trying to find an answer and figure out how they are to respond to the world's swiftly changing values, We get phone calls from people who don't even go to our church, don't even attend here, emails from people who don't attend going, so I believe the word of God, I believe the words of Jesus, I've surrendered my life to Jesus, but the culture around me, my own family, my own friends, the people that I see and deal with every day are saying something exactly opposite of what the church is saying, how do I respond to that? Without dividing my family? How do I respond to that without ruining friendships? How do I respond to that and still remain effective as a child of God? This sermon series will respond to this question. When culture changes, how do I respond? How do we respond? How does his church react to the culture around us that is growing more and more secular? not just secular, but hostile, more and more hostile toward us, toward God, toward his word, and toward his church. So in this series, I may mention some specific cultural issues, but that's not what this sermon series is going to be about. I've already gotten several messages, texts, and emails of people suggesting things I preach on during this series. And... Um, I read all of them and then I prayed, and I will say what God tells me to say. Is that all right? Um, Instead of talking about, thank you, instead of talking about specific cultural issues, what I want to do in this series is I want to try to develop a biblical framework on how to address the growing tensions between the church and the culture, I want to talk to you about how to respond to that, what to do. Now, some of that you're going to get in this sermon, and I hope to trigger some ideas, and I hope to say some things that are going to help you, but the best way to know how to respond to that is you having an intimate relationship with God. It's all about your relationship with him. It isn't about you hear a sermon on seven ways to respond. And I'm going to talk about some ways to respond. And I'm going to talk about what the Bible says about our attitude. But guys, the way to know how to respond to this tension between a secular, left-leaning culture and the Bible-believing, Christ-centered church is to get close to God. And the Bible says when you don't know what to say in that moment, he will give you the words to say. So we can study this, and pastors going to preach on it, and our other two pastors are preaching on it at the other campuses. I'm doing a much better job, but still they're doing the best they can <laughs> at the other campuses. I mean, if you really want to get fed, you <laughs> not to mention my humility. Um, now Pastor Jim and, and Pastor Andrew know how to bring it, don't they? We love them for that. We, I, I, listen, I don't worry at all about what's being preached at our other campuses. I know these men, and I know their heart, and I know their love for God's word. and, and uh, So they're preaching on this too. Um, so as followers of Jesus in this culture we live in, we ask ourselves, will I change the world or will the world change me? We ask ourselves as a church, will the bridge influence the culture, or or are we going to allow the culture to influence the bridge? So let's go to the book of Romans, okay? Book of Romans. And uh, I'm not going to tell you where yet because I won't talk to you. Well, I have to tell you where. You won't get what I'm saying. All right, Romans 12, but don't read it yet. Romans 12, go to Romans 12. Let me just tell you a little bit about Romans 12. So, Romans 12 was written by who? Paul and he was where when he wrote it he's the same place he was he wrote most of the Bible he's in jail he's in prison you know I told y'all when Paul went to a city to visit and preach he didn't ask about the hotels he asked about the jails because he knew that's where he's gonna live that's where he he, he's gonna be in jail he's like the jail's nice I mean and they were always really nice everybody say not In Romans chapters 1 through 8, so let's break down. Let me just give you a, a brief outline of the book of Romans, the whole book. That scares you all a little bit, don't it? How long is he going to preach today? He's going to preach the whole book of Romans. So guys, if you'll, uh, yeah, yeah, I thought that was a scripture. Good. Right there are the questions we're going to answer. Romans chapters 1 through 8. So the first eight chapters, Paul explains the fundamentals and foundations of the Christian faith. Now look, um, The Book of Romans is not an easy book. If you go into the Book of Romans, uh, you're going to be wading in some deep water, but it is really, really, oh man. The Book of Romans, if you you absorb even a fraction of the Book of Romans and you're able to take it in and understand it and process it and exegete the scripture and just, man, you're going to be so much stronger as a Christian. But I will tell you, it's not, it's, not, um, it's not for the faint of heart. The book of Romans is powerful and deep. <clears throat> but in chapters 1 through 8, he talks about the fundamentals of the Christian faith and the foundations of the Christian faith. Now, let me just say, in light of what we're talking about here in a secular culture, fundamentals and foundations are essential. I believe it's in Psalm 11. Now, don't turn there. If you're taking notes, just write that in the margin. Psalm 11, he asks the question, if the foundations be destroyed, what will the righteous do? That's a question in Psalm 11. And then after he asks that question, he lists some of the foundations of our faith. That's a powerful passage. So in Romans chapters 1-8, through Paul explains the fundamentals and foundations of the Christian faith. In chapters 9, 10, and 11, Paul makes clear that if you want to go to heaven when you die, you have to experience salvation, and salvation is only from God. Not the God you pick, not the God you decide, and I know that's one of the Talking about particular issues, that's one of the particular issues of the secular culture is that we get to pick whatever God we want because the all ways lead to heaven. Everybody say, not. So he says to us in chapters 12 through 16, I'm sorry, in chapters 9 through 11, he makes clear God's sovereignty over salvation. The word sovereign means, means total rule. So when it comes to true salvation, can I just get really, really clear here? A salvation so that when you die, you go to heaven. Anybody interested in that? So if you want to experience that salvation, that when you die, you go to heaven for eternity, it is only through the God of the Bible. Now... I've, I just probably lost some people right there, some people that I referred to and spoke to at the beginning of our service that are still seeking and tr- still trying to figure out what's truth and what's right and which church is telling the truth. And and when I made that statement right there, that it pinched you a little bit because the secular culture out there is telling you, and the enemy loves this, is that you you can pick the bridgeway to heaven or you can pick, and I could call other religious systems, but I'd surely offend somebody if I did that, or you can pitch, pick that way to heaven, or you can go in the Middle East, and you can pick that religion, and it'll take you to all roads lead to heaven. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, Acts 4 and 12, write that in the margin. I'm not going to quote. It's not going to come up on the screen. It just came to my mind. Acts 4 and 12 says, there's no other name given among men. There is no other name under the Son, except the name of Jesus that a person can call on and get the salvation that leads to eternity in heaven. Now, now, I mean, I've already said something that is really, really controversial out there. It may not be so controversial in here, but what I just said to you is extremely controversial out there. But Paul makes it clear when you study the book of Romans chapters 9 through 11, that God is sovereign over salvation. And Paul goes on to spell out how a person may come into a right relationship with God. And all of that's in Romans 9 through 11. Now, in chapters 12 through 16, Paul transitions from talking about the fundamentals and foundations of faith and talking about God's sovereignty over salvation. And the first word. Of Romans 12 and 1. Guys, if you'll go to that next slide. The first word is what? Therefore. Now don't read the rest of this. Because I'm about to preach on that. And I know you already know this. This It's a very familiar passage. But what therefore means is. Since since I said what I said in chapters 1 through 11. Because now he's in chapter 12. So he goes, since all that's true. Therefore. And now Paul goes into how Christians are to live daily. How Christians are to live holy lifestyles. You'll notice in Paul's letters, when you read the other books of the Bible, Paul wrote, uh, these letters are called epistles. One guy in Bible college said that epistles were wives of the apostles. That is not correct. Paul tells Christians how to live holy in chapters 1 through 16. And you'll notice in his letters he often deals with the sins that creep up in the church. He deals with errors that creep up in the church and creep up in the lives of Christians. And these errors and these sins came about because the believers had conformed their lives to the world rather than letting their their lives be transformed and conformed to the power of God and the example of God. So he begins by saying Romans 12, 1 and 2. Everybody with me? Say amen. So Paul says, since I just taught you about the fundamentals and foundations of faith, and since I just told you that God is sovereign over salvation, then I urge you, brothers and sisters, and when he says that, he means what? Fellow believers. He's talking to believers here. I urge you, fellow believers, by the mercies of God, which means by God's help. How many of you know we can't live holy apart from him? You know, God isn't up in heaven with his arms crossed going, live holy. I'm watching. Listen, listen, you've heard me say this many, many times. <clears throat> every command of God. How many of you know when God says live holy, that's a command? But every command of God is a promise. Can you say that with me? Because I'm not sure we're getting that. Every command of God is a promise of God. That means when God tells Pharaoh Hardison to live holy, God knows Pharaoh can't. So God says, live holy, Pharaoh. And I go, yes, sir. And he goes, and I'm going to help you because you can't do it. Without me, you can't live holy. That's why That intimacy with Christ, guys, that we emphasize that and push that so much, because if you're not walking intimately with God, you're going to struggle with holy living. You're going to struggle to live righteously. He's the one who empowers you. Let me just say this, and i got to move on, because I really feel like preaching today. Y'all know I didn't get to preach last week. That's bad for y'all. Of course, you are in the early service, so I have to quit. So here's the deal. Paul is saying to us here, he's saying you want, you I demand God demands that you live holy, but it is by his mercies that you live holy. By his mercies, let's go on, by his mercies that you what? Present your bodies. That means you dedicate all of yourself, set you are set apart. You are set apart. How do I live a life that is set apart from the world? By his mercies, by his help, I am able to live a life that is set apart, live a life that is holy. How many of you know even with his help, I still blow it sometimes? Y'all look so holy when you're talking about me blowing it. We all do, don't we? By the mercies of God that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Therefore, I urge you to present your bodies a living sacrifice, here it comes, holy and well-pleasing to God, which is not irrational, not unreasonable based on what Jesus did on the cross, rising from the dead all that he's provided for us, on and on and on we could go, since he is who he is and he's done for us what he's done for us, then it is not illogical, it is not irrational, it is not unreasonable to ask you to worship him with your whole self. Next slide. And do not be conformed to this world. That's what this sermon series is about. Do not be conformed to this world any longer with its superficial values and customs. Come on. But be transformed and progressively changed because it doesn't happen overnight. You don't, you're not made spiritually mature overnight. It is what? It is, look at that word, it is what? Progressive, it's daily growing, daily maturing, and that's what the brackets you see there, the little explanation for the Amplified Bible. But be transformed and progressively changed as you mature spiritually, last slide, by the renewing of your mind, and that means that you change the focus of your mind where you are now focusing on godly, not worldly, not, not the secular culture, That's the values you looked at before. That's the values you embraced before you came to know Christ. But now you are to focus on godly values and ethical attitudes so that you may prove for yourself, so you may become even more deeply convinced in and of yourself what the will of God is, what. That which is good, you'll become more convinced of what's good. You'll become more convinced of what's acceptable. You'll become more convinced of what's perfect in his plan and purpose for you. That's good word right there. And I know that we've been through Romans 12, 1 and 2 many, many times since I've been the pastor of this church for 26 years. Right? We've gone to Romans 12, 1 and 2. I know you're sitting there going, we just talked about this three weeks ago because Romans 12, 1 and 2 is one of those passages in the Scripture, one of those um, verses, or these are two verses, of course, so it's a passage, that really just kind of puts everything in a nutshell. There are several other passages like that that I could point out to you, but this is one of them. So when you have one like this, you, you go over it quite often. And I don't know about you, but every time I go to this, I find something fresh. Don't you? Say amen. I'm like, Jeb Bush up here, somebody clap. Come on. <laughs> Amen. So so Romans 12, 1 and 2, and I, and I, I got to just testify here, and I, I know I've got to be careful of my time. This was mine and my son Mitch who died. This was our scripture. I cannot tell you the times I sat down with Mitch because I knew his addiction would require a Holy Spirit transformation of his mind. And so we, I taught this to him over and over, and we would walk through it, and we, would, and we would pray, and I would hear him pray, God, I want a transformation of my mind. I want a transformation of my mind. And guys, that's where it's at. Matter of fact, this whole thing... Um, culture wars between the secular left-leaning and swiftly left-moving toward left culture and the Bible-believing Christ-centered church, um, it's all about a battle for the mind. It's a battle for our mind. And I'm telling you, the people who want to pull us, and I'm not talking politically. I'm talking morally, because i got to tell you, I see some moral things on both sides of the political spectrum that need a lot of help. Amen. So I'm not talking about politics here. I'm talking about God. I'm talking about God right and God wrong stuff. So. So we get that from Him. We get that from His Word. And we understand there is a battle for my mind. And i got to tell you, the people who are pulling us away from God, they are really, really, understand what I'm saying, good at it. They're really, really, really good at it. Because if you'll listen to them long enough, you'll find yourself going, hmm. I mean, they're really, really good at it. And they're empowered, too. They're empowered. Y'all with me? There's a a power behind what they're doing. Now, it it isn't like the power behind what God desires, what God wants. But I want to remind you of something that's in the Bible. The Bible says that when Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, that this world generally got turned over to the enemy. And that he is now the prince of this world. Now, there is a king coming that will dethrone him, but right now he runs rampant in this world. So they're empowered as well. So, so the Romans 12, 1 and 2, we just did a quick read and a quick examination of God's clear instructions to us about how we are to live in this anti-Christ, anti-Bible, anti-Christian culture. And here's how we're to live. We're to live righteously. You say, but man, it's harder than it's ever been. I'm I'm not sure it is harder than it's ever been. I haven't heard about anybody in America being martyred recently for their faith. But I'll tell you what. The threat of that is growing. The threat of that is growing. We're to live righteously. What did he say right there? Don't be conformed. He's saying, brothers and sisters, Christians, people of the bridge who have surrendered their life to Christ, don't be conformed. Live righteously. And I don't think that's a surprise to anybody. Now, modern culture, here's what they want to do. Here's what they're doing. They want to muddle what it means to be holy. They want to muddle the definition of holiness. They want to make it murky. They want to make it different. Really, when you look at what the modern culture wants to do with the word holy, they want to say that your works mean holiness, that what you do. And and that is part of it, what we do. We demonstrate our relationship with God. But the enemy uses two things to destroy our influence in the world as Christians. Number one, uh, he works on us. And, and too many churches today and too many Christians today have mistakenly defined living righteously as always talking about what we are against. I mean, you could do a little test and you could ask the average Christian, what are you against? I mean, we talk, we're talking about people who love the Bible, love Jesus, love the church. What are you against? And they can go off on what they're against. They can go off on it, and then you turn around and go, "Well, what are you for?" And their list is much shorter. Are y'all with me? Because we want we we who, who were brought up in a in a in a um, Christ center church, Bible center church, it is our nature to focus on the thou shalt nots and what's going to happen to you if you do. And we love talking about that, and we love preaching about that, especially the ones we're not guilty of. In other words, can I preach? Are you all right? Everybody all right? In other words, pastor, you need to tell all these partiers on Sunday morning about partying on Saturday night. Well, most of them aren't in the early service because they don't feel good. But then it gets really quiet when you preach on stuff like what the Bible says about money. Thank you. I thought, I thought they were like, "You're out of here, preacher. We spend nice, but it ain't been that nice. So we want, we want the preacher to preach on stuff that we're good with, that we don't we're not. T- But when he talks about generosity, when he talks about forgiveness, when he talks about stop gossiping, when he talks about those things, we're like, uh, can you just move on to some real preaching and get off your little soapbox? Amen? Amen. So too many local churches have mistakenly defined living righteously as some legalistic box of rules. And what that does is it makes us it makes us appear to the world exactly the way that secular culture, that anti-God culture, wants us to appear to the world. Are y'all with me? So the secular culture out there, when we act like that, and we're, 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 when we're judgmental, and we're bigoted, and we're racist, and we're all that stuff, and we say we're Christians, and we say we're part of the church, and we say we're all good, and we got a relationship, with, the, the secular culture goes boom right there, see? Another thing that the enemy does is not only to get us to focus on what we're against and not really know what we're for, is um, they get that modern secular culture to seize upon this that I just talked about and effectively use it to depict us a certain way to the community around us. Again, mean, bigoted, uh, intolerant. These are the words they use when we say, but you know what, man? God's Word says that's not right. But we say it in a different way. We say it with anger. We say it with a judgmental spirit. So the church is asking this question. Here's what the church is asking. Do I live righteously, Pastor Farrell? So Pastor Farrell got a question. Do I live righteously or do I compromise my beliefs so I can be a better influence on a skeptical culture. I mean, what do do I do? Do I I stand by the word of God? Do I stand by Jesus? Do I I stand by biblical values? Do I take that stand and risk not being able to reach my lost friends? Or do I compromise on that so I can reach my lost friends? Actually, that's not a very good question. That question presupposes something. Here's a better question. How do I live a righteous, uncompromising life and still have a godly impact on the secular culture? How do I do that? So let's go to the book of Acts chapter 2, and I'm going to show you a little phrase that I've preached on many, many times here at the church, and we're going to just kind of go over it again. So Acts chapter 2, and this is one of those passages. Remember I told you, That Romans 12, 1 and 2 is like that, is like one of those passages in the Bible that includes a whole bunch of stuff and kind of puts it in a nutshell. You know, it's kind of like almost a summary form. So you always go back to that scripture so you can summarize what God's saying to us Romans 12, 1 and 2. Here's another passage that's like that. And it's Acts chapter 2, verses 41 through 47. Now, don't read all that while I'm preaching. But if you want to know what a healthy church is, if you want to know what a healthy church looks like, then go read Acts chapter 2, verses 41 through 47. And that's one of those nutshell passages where God takes everything and just puts it in a nutshell and says, you want, to, you want to know what I like? I mean, God's saying... God's saying, you want to know what I approve of? You know what kind of church I like? Here's the kind of church I like, Acts 2, 41 through 47. So I've preached on that many, many times. As a matter of fact, our vision statement, we uh, give life by giving Christ, that's our vision statement, is based on that passage. And it's also based on the passage John 10, 10, where Jesus said, I've come to give, come on, I've come to give and that more abundantly. In other words, I've come to give life abundantly eternally in heaven, but I've also come to give life, abundant life, now. A lot of y'all think you ought to wait till you go to heaven to enjoy abundant life. You can have abundant life now. now. Heaven's going to be way more better, okay? But I'm just saying, He wants to bless you now. He wants to show up in your life now. He wants to have presence in your life now. He wants to manifest His glory through you now. That's really important because some of you guys have bought into some bad teaching that we just got to cross our fingers and bite the bullet till Jesus comes. I'm telling you, Jesus isn't up in heaven only waiting for us. He's down here with us through the power of the Holy Spirit. And you can have abundance in your life when? Now, not just the sweet by and by, but the nasty now and now. Hallelujah. You say, well, don't you think all Christians have that? No. I run into Christians all the time. Look like they got baptized in vinegar. <laughs> Don't you? Lemon juice was baptism was full of lemon juice. Y'all with me? Those people hurt the testimony, man. They hurt the testimony. Acts 247, talking about the early church, talking about that you know, we have churches around town called First Baptist, First Prez, and then uh, you know our, our sister church up on uh, Wayne Memorial—they are the first church, the first—and <laughs> what they—they're the first IPHC church. This is the first church, the very, 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 very first church. And here's what, here's what the Holy Spirit through the writer Luke. Because Luke wrote the book of Acts, wrote in the book of Acts about how the community viewed that first church. It says that the first church, and that should be had instead of have, that's my fault, they had favor with the community. That first church had favor with the whole community. That's what we want. That's what we want. That's how we're going to win the lost. That's how the bridge is going to win the lost. When we have favor with the whole community. That early church, listen to this, was uncompromising while at the same time being very attractive to the lost. Let's pray a prayer right now. I don't know how far I'm going to get on this, but you know what? There's another Sunday coming. Everybody pray this with me. Dear Lord, help us be an uncompromising church that is very attractive, even irresistible to unbelievers all around us. In Jesus' name, amen. Boom. That's it right there. That's what we're preaching on. That's what we're talking about. The early church was uncompromising in its stand for the truth, yet at the same time it was very attractive, even irresistible to the unchurched culture around it. That's what we're after. That's what we want. Now look, you're not going to make everybody like you. It doesn't matter. When I talk about being an attractive church, an irresistible church, I'm not talking about the fact that everybody's going to love us. As a matter of fact, let me just tell you, and I'm going to get on this and get right off because I don't want to stay on it. We're criticized by churches as much as we're criticized by not people that are out of church. Amen? Okay, so I'm not, that's fine. That's cool. I'm okay with that. used to really bug me, but I'm okay with that now because I'm old and I really forget a lot of stuff. Can I tell you all something? I thought that when I started losing my memory, it was going to be a bad thing. Can I tell you it's a good thing sometimes? You can watch movies over and over and over because you can't remember how they ended. Are y'all with me? So I'll I'll DVR a movie and Millie will go, we've seen that. I've never seen that. It's awesome, man. (laughs) Pay one time, watch it for the first time 25 times. (laughs) There's your value on how to save money right there. (laughs) Oh, that's free. I won't charge you all for that. So the unbelieving culture, just like we have today, but the unbelieving culture of that day at that very first church had a positive view of the local church. Now, again, we're not going to get that from everybody. We're going to get criticized by religious people, and we're going to get criticized by people who just aren't going to be able to tolerate the fact that we believe the Bible. But I got good news for them, kind of, I guess you'd call it good news. There's a bunch of churches they can go to where they don't have to tolerate People who believe the Bible. <laughs> Amen? I'm just saying. And maybe you're thinking, but Pastor, they had, you're telling us now that this, this uh, unbelieving culture around the early church had a positive view of the local church. But Pastor, I know that that early church was viciously persecuted and viciously ter- uh, um, uh I mean, the the culture came against them. But you know what? When you read that, and it does come later, it really wasn't the culture that came against them. It was really more uh, from religious and government leaders. Hmm, sounds familiar. So there, the, the, and this is so important for you to get this, the opposition against that early church was really not from the general population of the community. They were very curious. As a matter of fact, not only were they very curious, they couldn't resist this group. That's what that scripture means right there. They had favor. The people were attracted to this movement, and it was amazing to see the miraculous things God was doing, and they were watching what was going on in that church, and unbelievers were like, oh, my word. This is is awesome. I don't get it. I don't understand it. I don't fully know what's going on, but that looks like what I've been looking for. The life-giving quality of this new church commended them to all people, not just other believers, but to all people. You know what attracted them, attracted unbelievers to them? Authenticity. They were attracted to this early church because of their authentic devotion to God. Can I I just tell you that most people today, they they are very curious about Jesus. They're sick of the church, but they love Jesus. I mean, in the sense that an unbeliever can love Jesus. Here's my point. They just want real. The world out there just wants us to be real. They just want us to take off the religious mask, admit that we mess up, even since we've become Christians, even since we've become followers of Jesus, we've blown it. We've messed up. And the same thing we want them to do, trust Jesus for forgiveness, we do it ourselves. They want authenticity. I tell you, the greatest compliment, and I'm going to be honest, and I'm going to pat you guys on the back, the greatest compliment that's ever paid to me at this church is not about the building. It's not about the, the music. It's not about the atmosphere. It's not about the lights. It's, we get compliments on all that. We also get criticism on all that. But the thing that I hear most is man, they're real. Listen to me, Bridge. Whether Pastor Farrell's here or not, whoever is going to be the pastor of this church when my time's done, you can't ever give that up. You can't ever give up authenticity. You can't ever give up being real. I mean, the minute we put that religious mask on, we become sickening to a lost culture. They don't want it. They're sick of it. It's hypocrisy. And they know it's hypocrisy. And they don't want to hear you preach when you act like you don't have failures. And they don't want to hear your sermons when you act like you don't commit sins. And they don't want to hear your sermons when you, when you act like you got it all together. And the problem is they need to get it together. They don't like messages like that because they know they're not true. Be real. Be real. Be authentic. That's the thing. Now, let me just close with this. Uh, Jesus talked about this. He talked about this attractiveness of his life-giving word, the word of God is attractive. Yes, it offends. Yes, it does. Matter of fact, I tell you guys all the time, the reason we teach our parking lot people to be so friendly and our people in the foyer to be so friendly is because when we get you in here, we're probably going to offend you because <laughs> we will tell you the truth. We're going to tell you the truth. I've offended some people here today, but if I have offended you, come up after the service and I'll forgive you. I mean, it's just the kind of guy I am. So Jesus talked about the, he said, when my, listen to this. Jesus said, when my followers behave like I've told them to, when my followers are life-giving, he said, it don't turn most people off. It attracts them. And he's talking about lost people. Look what Jesus said in John 13, 34 and 35. Jesus said, so now I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Look at this. Look at the yellow. Look at verse 35. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Your culture. We're talking about the worldly culture. The culture in here. What about our culture? See, when they see how we love on each other, when they see how we treat each other, when they see how we forgive each other, when they see how we put the past behind us and let bygones be bygones, when they see us taking care of one another in the time of storm and trouble and all kind of stuff, they're unbelievers, but they see that and they go, I I, I mean, man, that's what I'm looking for. I want that. Jesus said when they see us being life-giving, they will know these, are the, these folks are the real deal. There's that authenticity. They're, the, they're really disciples. Now, they might say, we've been to some churches that say they're disciples, but boy, they don't act like it. But when they love one another, it will prove to the lost world that you're the real deal. Look what he said in John 17. Let's go uh, four chapters ahead and look at John 17. And Jesus is praying to his father. And Jesus says, I'm praying not only for these disciples, but also for all men who will ever believe in me through their message. In other words, I'm not just praying for the disciples, but I'm praying for people who aren't saved yet, people who aren't Christians yet, But they will become Christians because they heard the message of the disciples. He said, verse 21, I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one, as you are in me. He's talking to his father, father, as you are in me, father. And then he says, father, I am in you, and may they be in us. May my believers, my followers, be in us so that what? The world will what? Believe the gospel, believe you sent me. Jesus is saying that the testimony and lifestyle of a believer is one of loving unity. It is life-giving. It is attractive. It is, the un- it is attractive to the lost. When the church was born on the day of Pentecost, the secular culture of that day looked at this new movement. They looked at this first church. They looked at this new church, and they couldn't believe it, and they wanted to be a part of it. Now, I'm going to finish my sermon with y'all standing up here. Is that cool? Let's all stand. And I want you to just walk up here. Now, if you can't walk up here or you need to stay where you are, that's fine. No pressure. But as many of you who can, I want you to walk up here, and I want to finish my sermon right here. So I found the coolest thing. I was just just doing my study and doing my research for this message, and I found the coolest thing. And I want to just read it to you. So there was a man who was a philosopher in the time of that early church, that Acts 2 church. You know, they were in the upper room. They got filled with the Holy Spirit. That's the day the church was born. The church was born the day the Holy Spirit came. Y'all know that story Acts chapter 2 120 in the upper room spoke with other tongues of the spirit of God gave the utterance and people who are, were there from different countries and they heard the gospel in their own language and so when that happened the local church the church was born. So there was a guy who was an unbeliever. He was a, he was an Athenian Philosopher, and I'm going to mess his name up. I'm about to Johnston County this name all to pieces. <laughs> I believe it's pronounced Aristides. And if you want these sermon notes, you, you can get them. You can do your own research. And I want to read to you what he wrote in his chronologies as an unbeliever viewing the early church. I did not know that there was an eyewitness of that early church An unbeliever who even wrote down his perception of the early church. Listen to what he wrote. And it's really ancient writing, so I'm going to paraphrase it a little bit so we can understand it better. He says, here's the thing I've noticed about that early church. This new church that was born in that upper room. They abstain from all impurity in hope of the reward that is to come in another world. He said, I've also noticed that as for their servants and handmaids or children, they persuade them to become Christians by the love they have for them, not judgmental. But I've noticed that the way they persuade their family and the people in their, in their circle to follow Jesus is by the love they have for them. And I've noticed that when they become Christians, they call them without distinction brothers. He said, I've noticed about this church that they do not worship strange gods. And they walk in all humility and kindness. And I've noticed that falsehood is not found among them. And they love one another. Now this is an unbeliever talking about that first church. He said, I've noticed that when they see a stranger, they bring him into their homes and rejoice over him as though he were a true brother. He's not a brother, but they embrace him. As a matter of fact, they let a guy belong. Any church that would say that? They must be crazy. And when there is among them a man that is poor and needy, and if they have not abundance of necessities in order to help that man, they will fast two or three days so that they will have enough to help him too and meet their needs. He said, I've been watching this church. He said, they observe meticulously the commandments of their Messiah so they don't compromise. I've noticed that they live honestly and soberly as their Lord, as the Lord their God commands them. I've noticed that every morning and all hours on account of the goodness of God toward them, they praise and laud Him over their food and their drink and they render Him thanks. He said, I've noticed in this church... That if any righteous person of their number passes away from this world, they rejoice and give thanks and they follow his body as though he were moving from one place to another because he is. <laughs> and when a child is born to them, they praise God. And if, and if again, it chanced to die in its infancy, I notice they praise God anyway. And they praise God because this little baby who died passed through the world without sins. Such is the law of the Christians. And such is their conduct. And he said, I don't believe. I'm not a believer yet. But I like like these people. These people move my heart. These people... I'm not turned off by these people, because they're real. What a recommendation to have this critique of the church from a man of the world. The early church was attractive, and it did not compromise. The enemy wants to destroy the testimony and influence of Christians in this world, and he does it by labeling us as intolerant, hateful, judgmental, angry. These false labels pressure us to compromise on what the Scriptures mean when they tell us to live righteous, holy lives that, is, that are well-pleasing and acceptable to God, Romans 12. Once we give into to the pressure and compromise, as so many local churches and individual Christians have done and are doing, then we lose. We don't gain. We don't gain in our influence. We lose it. We lose our influence to reach the world for Christ. God says that if we will abide in Him, then He will enable us to stand firm. In his teaching, uncompromising, while at the same time we're being uncompromising, he is enabling us to even be more influential in the lost world than we've ever been. Oh, This is one of the best sermons I've ever preached in this church. Now, I don't say that because it's best delivered or most interesting or got the most amens. I'm saying this because... This is essential to the future of this church. It is essential to the future of people coming to Jesus Christ. Now, you got homework. Because next week we're going to get into the book of Daniel. And we're going to study Shadrach, Meshach, and a billy goat. (laughs) is that right? Shadrach, Meshach, and to bed we go. (laughs) So we're going to study Daniel and... And the three Hebrew boys. And we're going to study how they tried to change their names like they're doing up. They're trying to relabel us in the world. We're going to talk about that. So you got homework. Go home read the first three chapters of Daniel. All right? Don't forget after this service, you're going to exit. And those of you who want to get in a life group or find out more about it, you're going to go left. Don't go too far left. (laughs) All right? Father, let this word be in us today. Let it change us. I've preached too long.